Hey, good morning, and uh, welcome to Veritas. My name is Ryan. I serve here uh, as one of the pastors. Going to get this pulpit where it needs to go. We're good. Um, and I just want to welcome you and let you know um, we're glad that you're here. If you, uh, if you are new with us, we're actually closing out a series today in the book of Genesis. And so if this is your first Sunday, uh, it's a great time to be here. In the words of that modern classic, Closing Time, uh, every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end, and so uh, here you are. Uh, in a few weeks, we're going to start the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, which is going to be a really good time. I petitioned, I lost, but I petitioned to have that series be called 1 Corinthians, uh, Let's Get Weird, uh, because of how wild that book is. You'll see uh, it's going to be a really fun and exciting time for us together as uh, a church. But until then, uh, this is a really bittersweet day. Uh, not, not counting a few breaks, we spent a little over a year in the book of Genesis. We started this book uh, last April, and uh, this is our 54th sermon on the book today. It's the longest series we've ever done uh, here at Veritas, and uh, many of you have started coming to Veritas since we've been walking through the book of Genesis, and so this is basically all that you've known uh, here at Veritas. And so I, I pray and I hope that this series, however much of it you've been here for, has been as foundational and as formative for you uh, as it has been for me. Genesis is a book of the Bible that is just so foundational to understanding uh, the rest of the Bible and who we are and why we're here and uh, what our purpose is, what really matters in life and what we should give ourselves to. And hopefully, uh, if you've been here, you've seen week after week, it is all about Jesus and the hope uh, that we have in him. And so getting to study this book together and see Jesus together every week together as a church has been so good for my soul and my walk uh, with Jesus. And I really pray the same has been true for you uh, as well. And so that'll really be kind of the same message as we close out the book today. We'll walk through these last uh, bits of text section by section, and in it we're going to see a preview, uh, a power, and a promised hope. A preview, a power, and a promised hope. Who knew Genesis was so Baptist, right? Uh, let's look at it together. We'll start in verse 29 of chapter 49, and we'll read down through verse 14 of chapter 50. Starting in verse 29, the very word of God to us today it speaks to us like this. It says, Then Jacob commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephraim the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field, with the field from Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittite. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in the tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. 
And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father." And so after uh, Jacob is done prophesying over his sons, what we saw in the first 28 verses of chapter 49 last week, uh, he gives his sons instructions on what he wants them to do with his body after he dies. Uh, And what he wants them to do with his body is to take his body uh, into the promised land. Don't bury him in Egypt, but bury him uh, in the promised land, in the tomb that Abraham bought for Sarah all the way back in Genesis chapter 23, because Abraham and Sarah are buried there. Isaac and Rebekah are buried there, and Leah, one of his wives, is buried there, uh, and that's where he wants to be buried. And so he gives this command, and then he draws up his feet into the bed, uh, and he dies. And so after Jacob dies, Joseph and the brothers begin to fulfill and carry out these commands that their father gave him. Uh, He goes to Pharaoh. He asks Pharaoh for permission to take his father's body back to the land of Canaan and bury him there. And he gets permission, and so they go uh, and they do this. And what you notice as they go and do this is that all throughout this passage, there's a bunch uh, of Exodus language. Uh, In verses 7 and 8, it says that the servants of Pharaoh or Pharaoh's slaves go with Joseph uh, along with all of the Israelites. Uh, Who's going to come out of Egypt in the Exodus? Pharaoh's slaves, the Israelites, right? Not only that, uh, notice how uh, the text keeps saying that they stop at a place beyond the Jordan. That means they're in the promised land. And not only that, this route that they take is very similar to the one that the Israelites are going to take when they come out of Egypt and go towards the promised land. And then also notice how uh, Jacob's name switches. In chapter 49, he's called Jacob by the author of Genesis. But then in uh, chapter 50, verse 2, it it switches over to Israel. It says the physicians embalmed Israel. Uh, And I think that's intentional. I think what Moses is doing here is trying to paint a picture for us and show us that the journey of Jacob's body from Egypt to the promised land is a preview of the exodus, of what God's going to do to the Israelites to bring them out of slavery to Egypt. All throughout the Old Testament, uh, their time and their slavery in Egypt is compared to death, and God bringing them out is compared to life and resurrection. And so the text is showing us, yes, even if they die and they are in the slavery of Egypt, God is ultimately going to bring them out uh, and give them life and raise them from the dead and bring them into freedom. And so in this, I think we're getting a preview of the Exodus 
Uh, but in this preview, I, I think we're all being given as well an example by Jacob of how we die well, what it looks like to die well in faith. And, and listen, I think this is an example that all of us need to heed because the reality is uh, you are going to die. Like, I am going to die. Uh, unless Jesus returns in our lifetimes, death is coming for all of us, and when it comes for us, uh, we need to be ready so that we can die well in faith like Jacob does here. And, and so what can we learn from Jacob's example? Well, for one, it is trust in the promises of God that enables you to die well. I, I mean, think about this. This is now the third generation since God appeared to Abraham and made these promises. And one of these promises uh, was that he would give Abraham and his family the entire promised land. Uh, but now that they have progressed into the third generation and the fourth generation with Joseph and Jacob's sons, uh, all they have of the promised land is still that tomb and that field that Abraham bought for Sarah all the way back in Genesis chapter 23. Like they've progressed into the third and fourth generation, but they haven't got more real estate. They haven't kind of gained on this promise at all. It would be so easy for Jacob to believe that God's just kind of forgotten about this or he's gone back on his word, but he doesn't do that. Just like Abraham and Isaac wanting to be buried here, Jacob wanting to be buried in the promised land with his people instead of in Egypt is a declaration that even though he is dying, the promises of God are not, and that even if he isn't going to see the fulfillment of them in his lifetime, God is going to fulfill his promises. John Calvin says this about Abraham buying this tomb, but it's applicable to jo Jacob as well. He says he particularly wanted to have his own family tomb in that land that had been promised to him for an inheritance. This would bear testimony to later generations that God's promise did not end with his own death or with the death of his family. For while the corpses themselves were silent and speechless, the tomb cried out that death was no obstacle to their taking possession of their inheritance. Death is not the end of God's promises because as surely as God brought Israel out of Egypt and gave them this promised land and fulfilled this promise, God will raise his people from the dead. And the reason why death is not the end of God's promises is because God's promises were never primarily about this life anyway. Uh, listen to Hebrews chapter 11, talking about all these men and women that we have studied in Genesis. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus, people who speak this way, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is how we die well in faith, even if we don't see the fulfillment of God's promise in our lifetimes, because we know God's promises were never primarily about this life. Like, we are waiting. God has better promises for us, and we are waiting on those. We will dwell in perfection with him, free from sin and curse. We will see God face to face. He will be our God. We will be his people. We will walk with him in a new heavens and a new earth forever. 
all of that is coming for us. And when you and I stir up our hope in that, we're, we're freed up to hold the things of this life a little bit more loosely. Because now, if, if I don't get to experience something good in this life, if I miss out on it here, I don't actually miss out on it because what God has prepared for me is greater than that thing anyways. And in Jesus, I won't miss out on that. If, if something good is taken away from me here, like, that's okay because God will give it back to me in, uh, when he fulfills his promises and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. Once again, you and I are going to die. We prepare to die well by living for this coming world and these coming promises right now. We ought to live this day in light of that day that is coming. And if we will do that and put our hope in that life that is coming, it can steal us to die well and to suffer well, something we see lived out next by Joseph uh, in this passage. Because the next thing we see in this passage is a power, specifically a power to suffer and to forgive. Look at verse 15 of chapter 50 with me. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So after the burial is over, the brothers start to talk amongst themselves, and they think, you know, maybe Joseph has just been biding his time, and just like Esau promised to kill our father Jacob once their father Isaac died, maybe now that our dad is dead, Joseph is finally going to get his revenge and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. And so they come to him, and they make up this story, and they say, hey, dad told us to tell you uh, not to hate us and to forgive us and to not kill us or put us in prison for what we did to you, so please forgive us. Uh, and Joseph weeps when they tell him this because he knows that this story is bogus. Like, he knows that if Jacob had really felt this way, he easily could have told him before he died. I mean, think back to those prophecies last week. Jacob was not afraid uh, to tell the sons what he really thought about them, uh, but he doesn't do that. And, and I'm sure Joseph has to be weeping with a lot of sorrow here because he already has forgiven his brothers. He's told his brothers that he's forgiven them, and he's proved it for the past 17 years by doing nothing but showing kindness to them and providing for them while they have been in Egypt, but after all of that, they're still afraid of him. They still do not trust him. And so they come before him, fall before him, and say, we will be your servants. And in response, Joseph gives us some of the most profound theology, really in the entire Bible. Because he says, hey, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? As for you guys, what you did to me, you meant 
evil against me, but God meant it for good that many people should be saved just like they have been. And so don't be afraid. I still forgive you, and I'm, con- I'm going to continue doing good to you. Joseph is showing us the way forward here to be able to forgive uh, others when they sin against us and the ability to suffer well. And, And I think we can sum it up, the example he gives us, in two things. One, Joseph shows us here that we should not put ourselves in the place of God, and then two, that we should trust the providence of God. So one, don't put yourself in the place of God. Because Joseph is saying, I'm not the judge. I'm not the one who gets to have final judgment and say over your life, that's not my place, that's God's place. Uh, Listen, if you are going to be able to forgive when people sin against you, you have to believe in God's judgment. You have to. Like, I'm not the first person to point this out, but, but denying the reality of hell and God's judgment is really something that only the privileged can do. Because when you have been horrifically wronged and sinned against, Like, what comfort is it to hear, oh, God's not going to do anything about that. Uh, He's just going to forgive everybody. He doesn't really care about that. Nothing is going to happen with this. That's the opposite of comforting, uh, because so often justice does not happen in this life. And if justice is not going to happen in this life, and God is not going to work justice in the next life, that means justice and revenge are going to have to be up to you if they are going to be carried out. You're going to have to find a way to make that person pay and pay that person back for what they did to you. But if you will take yourself out of God's place and trust his good judgment that all sin and evil will be judged and paid for, either by Jesus on the cross or by that person in eternity who has sinned against you, you're freed up to not have to take revenge. You're freed up to be able to forgive and leave it in the hands of God. Now listen, that's not saying that you can't pursue earthly and temporal justice against somebody if their sin against you rises up to that level, but it is saying that you're freed up to forgive and to not have to take personal vengeance on someone. And so we should take ourselves out of God's place and trust that he will do a better job of being God than we will and that his just judgment will come about in the world. And then second, we should trust the providence of God. Because what Joseph says next is so profound. He says, verse 20, he says, what you guys meant for evil, you guys meant what you did uh, as evil against me. Now, notice here that Joseph does not minimize what the brothers did. I think one of the misunderstandings of the gospel and forgiveness that we often fall into is we minimize evil in the name of forgiveness. Uh, So often, we will either downplay the seriousness of what we did to somebody else or what someone did to us, and we'll just say, hey, don't worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. It's forgiven and covered under the blood of Jesus, so we just need to kind of forget about it and move on. But that's not what Joseph does here, does he? he? He does not say, hey, not really that big of a deal. Don't even worry about it. I forgive you guys. Uh, He does not say, hey, uh, slavery for 13 years, that wasn't even that bad. I don't even care that you guys did this to me. I forgive you. No, he says, you guys meant to do evil against me, and you did. Like, it was evil. Listen, Christianity, rightly understood, 
It is the only religion that actually gives us the resources to understand this, to understand and to call uh, evil, evil, and understand why people do evil things against one another. Because listen, we don't think that people are basically good people who sometimes mess up and do bad things. We understand that people are totally depraved, not as evil and as sinful as they could be, but that there is no aspect of us, heart, mind, soul, body, strength, that that isn't in some way affected by our sin. Our, Our thoughts, our actions, our behaviors, our motivations are all tainted by sin in some way, which means that we do evil to one another. And Christianity, rightly understood, is the only religion that gives you the resources to be able to understand and acknowledge that people really do do horrifically evil things to one another. And we don't have to minimize it or downplay it. We're freed up in the gospel to call it what it is. It's evil. But we're also freed up in the gospel to not have to stop there. We can go further and press further and see what God is doing in the midst of all of this. Because yeah, Joseph doesn't minimize. He says, what you guys meant to do against me, you meant evil for me, but but God just one-upped you and did good to me at the same time. Uh, He's just better than you, and you're evil. At the same time you meant to do evil to me, he meant to do good. And, And did you notice how Joseph uses the same word here? He does not say, you guys meant it for evil against me, but God used it for good. He says, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. And so in a lot of ways, we are butting up against a mystery here that we're not gonna be able to fully understand and comprehend because the Bible is teaching here that at the same time, in the same act, human beings can be meaning something for evil while God can be meaning something for good. Like the Bible teaches both human freedom and responsibility, that we really do have freedom and we are responsible for our choices and we make real choices that we will be held accountable for. We're not just robots or puppets on a string. And at the same time, it teaches the complete sovereignty of God, that God is in absolute control of all things and is orchestrating everything that comes to pass. Nothing happens outside of the counsel of his will. It holds both of those things out at the same time. Now, listen, hear me. God never does evil. He's never the cause or the author of evil. And, and God and our actions are not on the same plane. It's not this sort of zero-sum game where if we act, God can't act. And if God acts, we can't act. No, God is the creator. We are creatures. And so in some mysterious way, God is able to use the freely chosen actions of people, both good and evil, to accomplish his good purposes, and to mean good in our lives. Now, how you reconcile all of that and sort all of that out, uh, honestly, I have no clue. Uh, I think we should probably just respond like Spurgeon did, the way he, was, when he did when he was asked how you reconcile these two things. And he said, you don't really need to reconcile them because they're already friends, uh, because they're both clearly taught in Scripture. And so in some mysterious way, God is able to work good in the midst of human evil. And and I've tried to think of an illustration that would really help kind of clarify this and give us a picture of this, but I I just keep coming back to the one that we're given here in the book of Genesis. Uh, Because to borrow a phrase, the life of Joseph shows us that the silence of God does not mean the absence of God. 
Like God didn't really appear to and speak to Joseph in the same way that he did to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but that did not mean that he was not at work in Joseph's life. No, he was intimately involved the entire time. Joseph's life shows us that even when it looks like God has fallen asleep at the wheel, even when it looks like God has forgotten about us, even when it feels like God has gone silent on us, he has not. He was intimately at work in Joseph's life, behind the scenes, in the mess, orchestrating everything to come about for his good and for God's glory. Like at the same time the brothers meant to do evil to Joseph, God used that evil to mean good and to put Joseph in a position so that thousands of lives, including the brothers who sinned against him, could be saved. Joseph's life is showing us that when it looks like God has gone silent on us or abandoned us or isn't working in our lives, he's not. He is at work. He is at work intimately and specifically to do this. He was at work in Joseph's life the entire time, both to do good, both to Joseph and through Joseph. And and so we see this in Joseph, but I, I think you see this dynamic even more clearly at the cross. Because at the cross of Jesus Christ, the darkest of human evil was exposed. Jesus' own people handed him over. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends for just a small amount of money. He was arrested on sham charges. He was put through a kangaroo court of a trial. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was stripped. And then he was hung to die and tortured to death by crucifixion. And listen, God didn't make any of those people do any of that to Jesus. They freely chose to do everything that they did. God didn't force their hand at all. But yet in all of that evil, in the midst of that horrific evil, God was at work to accomplish the salvation of the world. And listen how Peter puts these things side by side. In Acts chapter 2, he's preaching, and listen to what he says. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It puts them both together to show us that what we meant for evil, God meant for good. This is the power of God. God does not do evil. He overcomes our evil. He pays the price for our evil so that he can do good to us in return. And it's believing this good news that actually gives us the power to be able to trust the providence of God like Joseph does when we are suffering. Because so often we are just like the brothers in this story. So often we think, yeah, God is just biding his time. Uh, It's just a matter of time until he changes his mind about me and he punishes me for all the sin that I've committed against him. I mean, surely his rope has to run out at some point. Surely his patience is going to run out. But the good news is that just like this story, God is not like that. Like God is not the problem. We are. We are remaking God into our own image and projecting onto God and imagining that God is as frail and as fickle and as vengeful as we are, but God is not like that. Look, if he had wanted to punish us and pay us back, he would have done so already. Because unlike Joseph, Jesus really is in the place of God. He is God. And we have sinned against him. 
We do deserve his judgment, and he does have the right and the power to judge us. But instead of judging us for our sin and paying us back, he takes the judgment for our sin on himself so that in turn he can freely forgive us and welcome us and do good to us the rest of our days. He has been nothing but good to us. Which is why John Owen says the thing that most grieves the heart of God is when we have hard thoughts about him. When we believe that God is as frail and as fickle and as vengeful as we are. He's not. He's not. He's good, and he loves us. He loves us intimately and specifically. God allows evil, and he can use evil, but he never means evil. He never does evil. God is light, and there is no darkness, no evil, no sin in him at all. Look, you and I have to rest our hearts in this truth about God because the reality is that you and I are going to suffer. People are going to sin against us. People are going to do evil to us. In in a broken and fallen world, if you haven't experienced it already, uh, suffering and evil is coming for all of us. And and when it comes for you, you're going to be faced with the choice to either get angry and bitter at, at the world and at the person who sinned against you and at God, or you'll have the chance to allow this suffering to form you into a person of deep character and faith, somebody who trusts the good providence of God like Joseph. And it's believing the gospel. The gospel gives you the resources to be able to walk in the good that God means for your life through your suffering. Because, you know, you'll hear people say sometimes, you know, people don't really need theology when they're suffering. Uh, They just need your presence and your love. And look, there's a very real aspect in which that is true. If somebody's walking through an intense period of suffering and you come up to them and you say, hey, don't be sad. There's no reason to grieve about this. God works together all things for good for people that love him and are called according to this purpose. Like, what do you have to be sad about? This is all going to work out in the end. Like, you're a bad counselor if you do that. Please don't do that. But with that said, we need theology before the suffering hits. I'm paraphrasing J.T. English a little bit here, but he basically says we study the truths of God in the light so that we can cling to them and stand on them when we're in the dark. Because when the suffering comes and I'm in the dark, like I have to know that God is good in the dark. When, When the suffering comes, I have to know that God has not changed his mind about me and he is going to do good to me in the dark. I have to know that even if I can't see it or explain it right now, that God means good in some way to come out of this evil. I mean, what other hope do you have to turn to? That this is all just meaningless suffering? Like, what sort of comfort is that? Oh, God wishes he could have done something about this. He wishes he could have put a stop to this in your life, but he's a gentleman and all. He wouldn't want to impose on anybody. No, no, thank God we have a better hope than that. We have the hope of the gospel. St. Augustine said God had one son without sin, but none without suffering. 
And so we can look to the innocent suffering of Jesus and how he suffered for our sins in our place. And we can know that when suffering comes for us because of the cross of Jesus, it cannot mean that God is mad at us. It cannot mean that God has changed his mind about us. And it cannot mean that God is paying us back for what we've done to him. It means that God is accomplishing good in some way in our lives through this suffering. And if you will cling to him and cling to that truth, when you're plunged into suffering, you will come out of it on the other side, a person of deep faith and character who trusts the providence of God like Joseph. More importantly, you'll look like Jesus. You'll be able to forgive others when they sin against you. You'll be able to bear up under suffering and trust the good providence of God because you'll know that whatever uh, other people might have meant for evil in your life, God means for good. The gospel gives you the power to cling to Jesus when you're in the dark. The final thing this passage shows us and leaves us with uh, is a promised hope. Look at verse 22 of chapter 50 with me. It says, so Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So as Joseph comes to his death, like uh, his father Jacob, he, he prepares to die well in faith. He tells uh, his brothers and the people of Israel not to leave his bones in Egypt, but to take his bones with them when God visits them and brings them out of slavery to Egypt. Like his father Jacob, he is dying well with his hope firmly set on God. He is betting everything on the promises of God, pushing all his chips in. Because if God doesn't fulfill his promise, if he doesn't bring his people out of slavery to Egypt, Joseph's bones aren't going anywhere. But he trusts, just like Jacob, that even though he is dying, the promises of God are not, and God surely will visit them and fulfill his promise to them. And, and this is how the book of Genesis ends. Uh, we, we began this book with God speaking everything into being, speaking life and blessing uh, and delight into the world and creating humanity and placing them in a garden full of life and blessing and delight. But we end this book with suffering and death because, because sin and curse and death has come into our world. But, but even though we end this book with suffering and death, that does not mean that we end this book without hope. Because not only does this text of Genesis point us forward to the hope of the Exodus, it also points us forward to the hope of what will ultimately undo all of our death and sin and the curse, what will set everything back to right, the resurrection. I mean, because think about it. Both Jacob and Joseph don't want to be buried in Egypt. They want to be buried in the promised land. But you realize if death is the end of our stories, then it doesn't really matter where they're buried right? Like if you just die and that's the end of it, who cares what happens to your body? Who cares where they take 
your bones. But, but Genesis ends with Jacob and Joseph both expressing this hope to show us that even in the shadow of suffering and sin and death, death will not win out. Resurrection is coming. Life will win in the end. Because in the fullness of time, God did visit his people. He did exactly what Joseph said that he would. Jesus, God in the flesh, he came to this earth and he dwelt among us. And he came and he lived the perfect human life that you and I have not lived. And then he took that perfect life and he laid it down for us on the cross. His good for our evil so that he could turn our evil into good. And he died and he was buried but he did not stay dead. He fulfilled this hope that Jacob and Joseph died with, and he rose from the dead. And listen, the resurrection of Jesus means that the hope of eternal life with Jesus is a certainty. It's not just wishful thinking. This is real. This is not just a good story. We have not gathered together here this morning to talk about some cool things in this text or to point out uh, the, the quality of the writing or the quality of the story like you might with Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter. Like, this is real. This isn't make-believe. This is a certain hope. The hope that Jacob and Joseph both died with, the hope that many of us are going to die with, will be fulfilled in Jesus. He will raise us from the dead, and he will fulfill all of his promises to us. And so this is how Genesis ends, by encouraging us to put our hope in the resurrection. You put your hope in the resurrection, and you'll be able to die well. You put your hope in the resurrection, and you'll be able to live well. You'll find a power and an ability to love and serve and suffer and forgive a supernatural power that you're not able to drum up in your own strength. And this is what the, uh, the hope of Genesis is leading us towards. And this is the promise that we're left with, that Jesus will make all things new. So we, we have more to live for, and we've got a better hope to cling to. Let's live this day in light of that day that is coming. Because listen, we are resurrection people. We believe that God does his best work when things seem their darkest. There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem and a king right now, alive and well, sitting on his throne in heaven, telling us that it's all true. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this good news that even in the shadow of sin and suffering and death, we have the promise and the hope that life will reign, that you will raise us from the dead. And we know it's true because you have already come and have risen from the dead, the first fruits of the new creation. So Jesus, would you help us? Would you help us to suffer well, to trust uh, the good that you mean in our lives through suffering? Would you help us to forgive those who sin against us and to walk in that forgiveness? Would you help us to walk in the forgiveness you've given to us and not be like the brothers in this passage, doubting your goodness and doubting the reality of your forgiveness towards us? And would you help us to live today in light of that day? Would you help us to stir our hope up in, in the future and in the resurrection and in the promises that you have made to us that you will surely fulfill? I pray that you would in your name. Amen.